Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Okay, go to Psalm chapter number 89. We're going to bounce around kind of all over the place today in the Bible. But if you want to start the journey in Psalm chapter number 89, Justin mentioned that we are, in fact, uh, closing out this sermon series on angels this morning. And uh, next week, we'll, do a, we'll start a little two-week mini-series on spiritual counterfeits. Uh, these things that the Bible tells you on the surface would appear to be wise to invest in or to kind of... Uh, Put your stock there, but they just have a show of wisdom, and they're actually not wise, and they can move you away from Jesus. So we're going to look at that the next two weeks, and then, and then we'll go from there. Uh, but it really has been fun and a joy for me to study angels. It's been a joy for me to hear uh, some of your all's stories, and many of the stories center on, I'm not exactly sure how this happened, but I have no way to explain it other than that. I was protected in a divine way. I should have died. I should have been, you know, maimed, and, and I was just protected in some way, shape, or form. And the only explanation I have is an angel. Um, it's been fun to even hear some of, uh, one person told me, hey, I had a dream, and in this dream there was an angel. And they said, get right with God. And that week I found God, and I got saved. Um, but most people have, have told me, like, when I... When I've told people this in the past, they looked at me like I had three heads. You know, they looked at me like, that's not possible, or you're crazy. And it's just, it's been good to, to maybe normalize some, some of this. And uh, it's been fun for me. And this morning, I want to round it out by looking at the angels again, but trying to make it very practical, very pragmatic, and to look at lessons we can learn from the angels. And most specifically, I think that we can learn how to worship how to work, and then how to war. So let's start our journey with the idea of angels show us how to worship. So the Bible is filled with angel worship. And by angel worship, I don't mean people worshiping angels, because you don't do that. But angels worshiping God. And we want to join them in their worship of God. And, and it's really interesting, if you can be a fly on the wall, there can be tremendous lessons you can learn from the angels and how do they worship, how do they approach their worship of the Creator, and we can take that to heart ourselves. I like how uh, David Jeremiah actually boils this down in his book on angels. He boils angel worship down to two words, which are fear and freedom. And I thought that's, that's an interesting and I think unique way to capture the heart of what angel worship is. Psalm 89 tells us who... Uh, for who in heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? Go in heaven, look around, even see the angels, and see if there is any comparison to God. And it's a rhetorical question. Nobody or nothing, no elder, no beast, no creature, no angel, no human can be compared to God. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of his saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him, which most scholars think is an angel reference. And the angels hold God in reverence and in fear, and so should we. In their worship of God, there is a healthy fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs. You will get nowhere in life unless you have a healthy reverence and awe of God. So by fear, we do not mean you run in terror. By fear, we mean there is a, an awesome wonder 
there is something so majestic and so splendid about God that it would produce in me an awe and and this reverence that God is holy, God is unique, God is different. Who can you compare to him? You know, we have uh, young kids in the house. Our youngest now is four, so we're just now phasing out of these books. But when they're little, you have these books that teach them opposites. It, it, there's these picture books, and it'll be like one word, but it'll teach them up and down or left and right or those sorts of things. And it helps you play the opposite game. I don't know the last time you played the opposite game, but help me this morning. We're going to play the opposite game together as, as a church, okay? I'm going to say a word, and you're going to respond with the opposite of that word. So, for example, if I was to say small, you would say big, okay? It's a very simple game, but let's see if we can play it together. I'll say a word, you say the opposite. Darkness. Oh, you guys are good. Okay, well done. If you didn't participate and you thought that like it was going to be really hard, now you know, okay, this is easy. I can do it. Other people spoke. I can do it too. Here we go. Second one. Uh, Short. See, two for two. You're on it. All right, now let's go. Let's go biblical a little bit. Don't be hesitant. It should be pretty easy. Angels. Okay, well done. Same category there, but you got, you got good angels and bad angels. You have angels and demons or angels and devils, for sure. Let's try this one. God. Yeah, you were hesitant on that one, and rightfully so. But I, I knew that there would be some murmuring, some mumbling, some whisperings, that there would be some devil, some Satan, and it was a trick question. I'm sorry, I tricked you. There is no opposite of God. Now, Satan would have an opposite in that, like a powerful angel like Michael or something like that. But there is no opposite of God. He's one of a kind. He is unique. Everything else has a category, right? Oak is a tree. Lassie is a dog. You are a human. God is in a category unto himself. He is holy. He is the only one. Who can you liken unto him? And because he is the only one, because he is superior, therefore it means for us that we should have a reverence and an awe and a respect for God. And you find the angels that all of the assembly of the saints and those that encompass God, there is a reverence and a fear for God when they worship him. But that reverence and fear does not turn them into statues. They aren't frozen in fear. There is also a freedom in their worship. You can find this in so many different occasions. You can see it as the saints worship in Revelation where they're like waving palm branches. But you can find it especially of the angels. Sometimes they're flying. Sometimes they're doing this. But in Ezekiel, it's probably my favorite description of angels. and describes them as starting at one point but not going back and forth but like going in a circle. And the description is that they do it like lightning. It's just real fast. They're just circling real fast. Then it talks about their wings, and then it's like the sound of thunder. If you've ever heard a flock of birds take off from like a host of trees or something, you know that that flapping can combine for a really cumulative, powerful sound. And it talks about the sound of of them and, and them running very quickly. And there is this freedom in worship. I love how Jeremiah puts it when he talks about these two. He says the cherubim and God's presence aren't locked into silent stillness. And although there's nothing wrong with being silent before God, and there's nothing wrong with being still before God, 
but you don't get the sense that they're wooden Indians. They're not locked in silent stillness. They are engaged in free, active, and noisy worship. There is this fear and this freedom that combine to help them worship God. And it would be good for God's people to take a lesson and say, if the angels worship him in fear, but also in a sense of, of freedom, there's a lot of vehicles by which I can worship God. There isn't like this one protocol. We actually talked about this about a year ago as we went through Revelation we covered the book, you know, piece by piece, verse by verse, walking through it. And we got through chapter 4 and chapter 5, and then we went back. It's the only time we did this in our Revelation study. We went back and we surveyed Revelation 4 and 5 because 4 and 5 is this unbelievable picture of worship in heaven from the beasts and from the elders and from the angels, from the saints, from everybody. And it's so grand and so majestic. And we surveyed different ways that God has worshipped just in those two chapters alone. And I'm not, I could spend a whole sermon on it, but I just want to remind you, just machine gun style, real quick, these different vehicles for worship that we have. There's praise of God. It's how we worship God. The positive proclamation of the goodness and the character of God. We praise God by proclaiming to him that he is good and his character is amazing, that he is holy, that he is wise, that he is merciful, that he is gracious. We praise him by telling our brothers and sisters in Jesus. We also praise him by telling a lost and dying world about the goodness and the character of God. We praise him. Thanksgiving happens in those two chapters where people are grateful for what God has done. Just expressing, God, I'm, I'm grateful for my life. I'm grateful for, us, for salvation. I'm grateful for what you've given me. I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for your promises. You also find that giving of our possessions is a way to worship God. In Revelation, they take their crowns and they throw them at his feet as a way to say, this is something of value, but I want to give it to you because you are the ultimately valuable one. There's a lot of reasons why we would give. It's blessed to give, there's joy at the end of giving, you help other people, you can push the mission of God forward through your generosity, there's a lot of reasons to give, treasures in heaven, but the primary reason we give is out of worship to God. God, as I'm giving to you, I'm declaring to you that I trust you with my money, I trust you with my stock, I trust you with my bank account, I trust you with my checkbook, you are the one that has given everything, and I say thank you to you, and I give some back, and I worship you through my, through my generosity and my giving. You find that posture is something that is used as an expression of worship to God. And there's not one posture. You find people raising hands. You find people waving palm branches. You find people on their knees. You find people falling down prostrate. You find all kinds of postures. But most all of which generally indicate some sort of submission. We actually, it's, it's interesting to me, we use these same postures of like hands and knees and, and on your face. We use those as types of submission even in our culture, just humanly speaking. Like if you have a run-in with the law, maybe there's a warrant out for your arrest and you become an outlaw or something, and the cops find you and they're going to arrest you, you know what they're going to tell you? Put your hands where I can see them. On your knees. Lay face down on the ground. Put your hands behind your back. Why would they do that? All of those are postures of submission, of I am no longer in control, you are the one that's in control. All of those are indicating to them that you give up and you surrender. It's the same way oftentimes that there can be a, a posture of surrender to indicate that you are the one in control and I submit to you and I worship you, you are the creator, I am the creature. You can use posture as a way to worship the Lord. Confession. 
You find that in Revelation 5, verses 3 and 4. Nothing kills worship faster than pride. What's the antidote to pride? Humility. Well, how do I, get hu- how do I stay humble? There's a lot of answers to that question, but maybe start with confession. It's tough to be real prideful when you come to a holy God and confess how unholy you have been and how you need help and you can't conquer that sin in your own power. Like that's a very humbling thing and that's the point. That's why many people run from it, but it's why as Christians we should run to it because it humbles us and it helps us worship. Music and singing, of course, is part of Revelation, including four and five. They have harps and they're singing. And I loved this morning to to hear voices. And I love different moments where there was a flute or there was a trumpet that kind of stood out in the the worship. And to hear people using their gifts to play instruments as worship to God. Prayer, of course. The prayers are these, these odors, this incense that is in the nostrils of God. And just think about that next time you go to pray, that this would somehow be sweet smelling to your heavenly father. The exposition of truth is in there. All of these are vehicles by which you could employ or or get into so that you could worship the Lord. And here's the point. The angels worship God. It is like one of the primary bullet points on their job description. (laughs) And And we should take a page from their book and say that is our job as well as the creatures to worship the creator. Not to turn that backwards as Romans 1 would say, and they started to worship the creature rather than the creator. But no, we worship God. There's also a lesson to learn that angels show us how to work. Probably the most profound and and talked about verse on angels in all the Bible, and one that I've mentioned almost every sermon, is Hebrews 1. The angels are ministering spirits. Are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth to minister to, for them who shall be heirs of salvation. They are spirit beings who serve, minister, work. And they oftentimes work on our behalf, those that know the Lord Jesus. It's in this sense that we actually oftentimes refer to humans as angels. And we don't literally mean that. We just use it kind of as a, as a metaphor. But oftentimes, if someone comes to help you, maybe you have to move, and you, you know who your friends are when you text 10 people and three show up to help you move. You know who your true friends are, right? And they show up, and they help, and, and they, they move you out of your house, and you say, man, you've been an angel today. What do we mean by that? We mean you helped me is what we mean by that. I actually just got a card in the mail here a week or two ago uh, from the Need Cafe. A uh, handful of you, I think 20 or 25 of you, and we mentioned this uh, previously in a sermon actually, but you went down to Need Cafe during Thanksgiving and helped them serve the meal and those sorts of things. And Need Cafe sent me a letter and, or a little card, a note, and that note had a big headline on it, kind of printed on the card, was, uh, you've been our angels. Now, were we literally angels? No, but in the sense that we showed up to minister and to serve, in that sense, they're employing it. We have an angel. So angels show up and they work and they minister, but they do a good job. And we take this for granted. God trusts them and so should we. And there's never any negligence or lack of diligence. They never bumble and fumble through things. This is actually alluded to in the Christmas story. And it's a phrase that we oftentimes just kind of breeze by. 
But the Christmas story, if you read from, most people read Luke 2. I know the Christmas story is bigger than Luke 2 verses 1 through 20. I'm aware of that. But generally, when you sit down and maybe you read the story, you're going to read Luke 2, 1 through 20, where there was uh, Cyrenus who was governor of Syria, and the decree went out, and they were to be taxed, and Mary went to Bethlehem, and she was great with child, and, you know, there was no room for them in the end, so she had the baby in the manger. Then the angel showed up to the shepherds in the field, and they said, hey, Jesus is being born, and you should go find him, and you do the Christmas story, right? You get to the end of the Christmas story, and you find this in verse number 20. The shepherds returned. This is after they found baby Jesus. And they're glorifying God, and they're praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. And listen to this phrase, as it was told them. Who told them? Well, the angels told them. The angels showed up. I was like, hey, unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And you're going to find the babe. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes, and he's lying in a manger. The angels delivered the message, and that phrase, as it was told them, means the angels told the truth. They gave them an accurate message. They gave them the treasure map on how to find the treasure in baby Jesus, and the treasure map actually produced the treasure. They weren't chasing a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Like, they delivered an accurate message. And to think about, like, how funny it would be if we couldn't trust angels. Like, how different the Christmas story would be and how comical, honestly, it would be if an angel showed up and was like, Fear not! I bring you good tidings of great joy. Unto you is born, I think it's today. I really can't remember. God told me, but I forgot on my way here. It's either tomorrow or the next day or today. It's one of those three. But one of these three days, he's going to be born in uh, Bethany or Bethsaida or Bethlehem. It's one of those three. So see if you can find him. Like that would be a funny story. You would never expect that, right? Because when you expect that God gives the angels a job or a message, they execute. They're on point. There's no, there's no fault or there's no lack of diligence. And in that sense, in the most simple sense, you could take a, a, a lesson from the angels. The angels, although they're a different being than us, they were created to minister, to work. We as humans, we know that we were created with work in mind. God gave Adam a job first before he gave him a wife or anything else. We will, even in a glorified body in heaven, if you read Revelation, we will still serve and minister ourselves. There's something very humanizing about work. So in the sense of we should work, we should work hard, those are parallels. In the sense that we should do a good job, that we should work well, we should hone our craft, we should execute well, we should be good employees and good employers. Like if you're an employee... You should work. You should show up. You should show up on time. You should not play on your phone all the time. You, to the extent that your boss doesn't do something illegal, you should have their back, even if it's not popular, even if the new policy is something that everyone else moans and groans about. Like, you should be a good employee and not complain all the time, but be there and have a good attitude and show up and work hard. If you're a boss, be a good boss. Don't use people and love money. Love people and use money to help them and to bless them. Like, we can take lessons from them, but I think maybe the most profound lesson from angels in their work is that they serve God. There are other Christians on the other end of their work, but they, they hear the commands of God, and their, their goal is to listen to the voice of God and to do what God wants. That's their goal. Man, make that your goal. You're looking for a New Year's resolution? You're looking for a New Year's goal? Try that one on for size. 
this year, I want to be sure that my ear is to the ground, or maybe better said, my ear is to the heavens. And I'm listening for the voice of God. What does he want? And by the way, don't make him, don't be like, God, I'll do what you want. Just send me an angel in my dream. He already told you, okay? Do what he said first. There's a lot that he already told you to do. Open up his word, go to church, get in a Bible study. What does it say? What are the commands? What do I need to avoid? What do I need to pick up? And do what he said. Listen to him and obey him. Be like the angels in their work. But then you also want to be like the angels and you can learn a lesson from them in their war. It's not just, hey, they worship and they serve, but there's also this, this warfare. Now, I must sidestep for just a moment because many people have, have asked me through the course of the series, hey, what about this and what about this? And one of the questions that I've gotten often is do we have guardian angels that are there to protect us and like be soldiers for us and work for us? But do we have guardian angels in the sense of like, I am assigned an angel, right? Like I got Bob and you got Tom, right? Or maybe I get Bob and Tom. Maybe I'm lucky and I get two of them. Be like, are, are they assigned to me? Are they like track with me through my life? And then when I graduate to heaven, they like get a new assignment or something. Is that how it works? And there, there are three places in the Bible where the Bible seems to maybe perhaps, perhaps hint at that we would have like a personal guardian angel. If you ever come across an article or read a book or even listen to a sermon where someone uh, claims that you have a guardian angel, they're going to use one of, if not these three verses. One's in Psalms. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful little verse or two where God will give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. The idea is that God is assigning his angels to protect you. That's a very biblical idea, but it would be a stretch to say that verse says I get specifically assigned an angel by the name of so-and-so and they're mine and they're like by my side all the time in the shadows or something. It doesn't say that, but it does say that part of their job description is to help us specifically in a way of protection and deliverance, which is the majority of the angel stories that I've heard from you all have been in relationship to protection and deliverance. You also would find in Matthew that you shouldn't despise the little ones, the children. And it says, I say unto you that in heaven, their angels do always behold the face of my father, which is in heaven. And some say, look, it says the kids, the kids have their angels. Like it's that kid and that angel. And it's like, well, what about the adults? Like where is kid? Do they leave them at nine? But, but once again, it doesn't say that you have a personal angel. And that may be, it may be, I don't know, but nor do you and nor does anybody else. It could be saying they're angels plural. Maybe there's like pediatric angels. Who knows? But you can't take from those two that for sure there's guardian angels. There's also one more in, in Acts where Peter gets let out of prison and people are praying for Peter in Acts 12 and Rhoda comes to the door and Peter's knocking on the door like, you know, Little pig, little pig, let me in. And she, she's like, who is it? It's Peter. And she goes back and tells the people, it sounds a lot like Peter. They're like, it can't be Peter. And she goes back and talks to her. She's like, it really sounds like Peter. And like, it's his angel. And some have looked at that and said, well, it says his angel. Once again, there's not anything definitive. So what you need to know is, one, could there be guardian angels in that sense? Maybe. I don't know, and neither do you. 
What you need to know, number two, is if you come across something that acts like they do know definitive, like if you go to a Christian bookstore and there's a book, Your Guardian Angel, How to Meet Them, Know Their Name, and Have Them Help You More, like give that a wide berth. Give it a wide berth. I'm honest. Because they're going to not only inflate the scriptures, they're going to add to the scriptures massively to tell you things that the Bible just never clearly says, and you don't want to step beyond the bounds of scripture. But we do know this. They do work. They do work on our behalf. They do at times protect us. We know that. We also know that they war and that they're warriors or soldiers. You would find specifically in the Revelation that Michael and his angels war against the dragon and his angels or fallen angels. You would find in Daniel this really interesting episode that time does not allow me to, to really dive into in depth. But Daniel is praying, and he's not praying for an angel, but God chooses to send an angel as an answer to his prayer, and the angel shows up like a week late, basically, and is like, Daniel, I would have been here sooner, buddy, but I was hindered, like I, I got entangled, you know, with, with this fallen angel or this demon, and I would have been here sooner. So there is, the point is that the angels teach us there's spiritual warfare, there's a spiritual dimension that generally speaking, we do not have eyes to see, but is real and does exist. And what they do oftentimes shows us exactly that, that there is spiritual warfare. And of course, we don't need the angels to tell us this because the Bible explicitly says it. Ephesians 6 is the classic example that tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In other words, your enemy is not that person. It's not that human that really is your enemy. We wrestle, how? Against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. All of that to say, you're wrestling against the demonic and there is a spiritual dimension to the Christian life that you better not ignore. It goes on to tell you how to, how to engage in this warfare and that you need the word of God and you need to be saved and you need truth and you need prayer and all those things that Ephesians 6 lays out for you. But the overarching point is that there is spiritual warfare. You say, okay, what do I do with that? Here's what I would recommend. I am not a guy or a pastor that would say, see a devil behind every door. There's not a devil behind every door. If your engine blows up this week, be very careful to shake your fist and say, the devil's after me. Well, let's start here. Did you change your oil? No, I didn't have the money. Well, why didn't you have the money? Because I don't have a job. The devil's after my checkbook. Well, why didn't you have a job? Why well, I did, but I showed up late over and over again and they fired me. Okay, we've come to the end of our conversation. There's not a devil behind that door. You're dumb. That's it. You didn't show up on time. You got fired, so you don't have a paycheck, so you didn't change your oil, so your engine blew up. That's called cause and effect and foolishness. That's not the devil's fault. We're not going to pin it on him and act as though I'm a spiritual giant and the devil's really after me today. Nuh-uh, nuh-uh. So there's not a devil behind every door. But we also don't want to act like there's a devil behind none of the doors. Because that's real. I don't have an explanation for Palestine wanting to start war with Israel and all of the death to Israel and all the craziness that is unfolding. 
Other than that, it's demonically motivated. I do not have a medical explanation for why someone wants to load a gun and walk into a school and do a mass shooting other than demons. I'm not chalking that up to depression or anxiety or, or too many meds. I'm not. Like that's, there's a devil behind that door. I'm not looking at the trans agenda that's happening in our country right now and coming up with an explanation other than that that is demonically motivated. There are devils behind those doors. And you, we better act like there are and not bury our head in the sand. You say, well, that's, that's them. That's those people over there. And that's those people that are messed up. And that's those people. That's not my life. Wake up. How, how do you describe the apathy and the general slumber, spiritually speaking, inside of the American church other than the devil? I'm painting with a broad brush for sure, but there's a lot of the American church that is asleep at the wheel, that is as comfortable and as cozy as you could possibly imagine. Now, when I read my Bible, I see in the early church, the devil turned up the heat and he tried to squish them. And it didn't work too well. The blood of the martyrs did become the seed of the church. And the church began to grow and to flourish and to spread as he tried to kill them and stomp them and hurt them. And this is admittedly a little bit of speculation, but it would make sense to me if the tactic was changed and instead of trying to squish them, the devil just started sticking pacifiers in our mouths and giving us nice little blankets and nice little bottles and saying, shh, 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 you go to sleep. Here's some Netflix. Netflix your way to oblivion. Here's some social media. Just doom scroll all night long. Just go to work, get a paycheck, come home, eat a little bit of something, turn on your TV for hours, go to sleep, and do it all over again. And if you're a Christian and the devil can keep you there, gladly. Because you, not only do you not realize you're, you're a soldier, you don't even think there's a war going on. There's zero wartime mentality. There's zero. And you're just floating through life as though this doesn't exist and there is no devil or devils and there are, there are no angels and there is no spiritual warfare. And at some point in time, someone has to you know, hit the button on the alarm clock and say, wake up. That exists. The reality of angels teach us as much and we need to be the church that says, you know what? I wanna be spiritually awake. I don't want to sleep my way through life spiritually. I want to engage. I want to know his word. I want to pummel hell with some prayers. I, I want to fight. I want to, I love how I heard this years ago in a, in a sermon. Someone said, I want to be a threat. I love that phrase. I want to be a threat. C.S. Lewis was, was noted for uh, saying, when I die, when I'm out of the fight, I want all of hell to rejoice. Like, I, am, I almost said, thank God. The devils wouldn't say, thank God. But let's say they did. Thank God, C.S. Lewis is gone. Like, that dude was hard to, to wrestle with. Like, I want to be a threat. Would to God there were more and more and more Christians that would think that way. That there's spiritual warfare. Nathan, help me out. Throw me my basketball there. I spent most of my elementary and junior high and high school playing one sport, one sport alone, basketball. I grew up in Kentucky, and in Kentucky, 
I guess track and field existed. I never knew a track and field person, but I'm sure it did. I don't think hockey exists in Kentucky at all, honestly. Like, I, I, never, I don't know any hockey rinks anywhere. Um, wrestling, like, you know, no one from Penn State is ever going to wrestle like someone from the University of Kentucky, like in a tournament somewhere, and it actually be a contest. It's not really a thing. Basketball's king in Kentucky. Like, basketball is what, is what people play. Football's there a little bit, but basketball is king. So we, play, we played basketball over and over and over again. Elementary and junior high, JV, varsity. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. I wasn't the most athletic person. I really had to work at it. But even in college, and I didn't play anything that was notable. I was like six man on what would be considered like a D2 you know, college team. Like I, I wasn't that great. But I learned enough, and they teach you very early on that when you get the ball in basketball, you want to be a threat. That's what they teach you. They actually have the ball goes in a specific position, which is called the triple threat position. You put the ball down here on your hip or over here on this hip. So that way you can pass the ball or you can dribble the ball or you can shoot the ball. You can do any one of those three from that position. And that way the defense doesn't know what's coming. You are interpreted in their eyes, you're a threat. Don't get the ball and hold it over your head with big eyes and be like, ah, what do I do? Because you're not a threat anymore. Even if you can't dribble and you can't shoot, act like you're a threat, right? There's this triple threat position. Now, admittedly, there are more than three ways that you could be a threat when it comes to spiritual warfare. But if I could just give you something very simple and practical, I'm going to give you the triple threat position, okay? You want to be a threat? Three things. Knees. Heart, hands, knees, pray, pray. The devil can't stop your prayers from getting to God's ears. Can't, undefendable. He can try to hinder some sort of answer to prayer and, you know, stop an angel from getting to Daniel, but he can't stop your prayers from getting to God. Pray, and don't just pray, oh, bless me, help me, bless me, help me, bless me, help me, the end. I'm talking about more than, God, thank you for my food, grace, amen. Pray. Like, get on your knees. Pray. Pray for the salvation of that coworker, that friend, that family member. You say, I have been for 40 years, Pastor. Keep praying. Pray. Pray for what's happening in our country. Pray for what's happening around the world. Jesus told us to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into his harvest. Jesus, can you add a few more people to our team? You got a, you got a great team, but we could use a few more. Pray. Heart. Love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. Love him with all of your heart. I know. You don't do that perfectly and neither do I. Anybody in here want to say, I love God 100%, 100% of the time. None of us are going to say that we do that. We all fall short of that. But man, that should be our aim. I was talking with someone recently. I was telling them, the Bible never tells us to worry with all of our heart. To fear with all of our heart. To complain about all the things that are happening in our country with all of our heart. It tells you to love God with all of your heart. Maybe you would be less focused on all this fear and all this anxiety and all these complaints if you chose to focus on loving God. Pray, get your knees involved, get your heart involved. Love God with all your heart. Get your hands involved. Go serve somebody. 
Go serve somebody. Have a bias towards action. Like, don't wait for the perfect opportunity at the perfect time where my schedule and all the stars align. Just go do something. You say, like, what? Pick. I mean, there's a million things. There's a, feels like a thousand teams here at the church. Jump on one of them. Well, I don't like kids that much. I don't, get over it. Like, go serve. Now, admittedly, we don't want cranky people with children who are just berating them all the time in junior church, okay? So we don't want that. But d- there's a million ways. There are other good nonprofits in the area. Make your own. I loved hearing somebody in the church just put together, no, no one from the staff said, let's do this. No one planned it. No one organized it. They said, you know what? Let's go caroling this week. Anyone want to carol with me? We're going to go to some of our widows. We're going to go to some of our shut-ins in the church, and we're just going to show up unannounced. We're going to sing them Christmas carols, and we're just going to be a blessing to them. I love that. Like, I'm just going to go do it because I think somebody should do it. Great. Do something. Have a bias toward action. Do not sit on the sidelines, never serving, never giving of yourself, never investing, never blessing other people. You want to be a threat? Get your knees involved. Get your heart involved. Get your hands involved. Now, this is the end, but the warning. Things that move forward experience friction, okay? When you wake up to the reality of their spiritual warfare and you start to engage in it, you probably are going to experience some friction, new levels, new devils. But don't let that scare you off. Don't let that stop you. The devil can't stop you from praying. He cannot stop you from serving. He cannot stop you from loving God with all your heart. But he can try to scare you to death so that you stop yourself. Don't stop yourself. Take take a page from the angel's book and learn what does it look like for me to worship God in fear and in freedom? What does it look like for me to want to work and serve the Lord from my heart? What does it look like for me to understand that there is spiritual warfare and I don't want to have my head in the sand? Take a page from their book and let's try to be more like Jesus. Our goal is to be more like Jesus, but man, there are some lessons that other saints and other angels can teach us if we pay attention.